This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. This is Talking Gardens. I'm Stephanie Mahan, editor of Gardens Illustrated, and this week I'm talking to Errol Rupin Fernandez, head of horticulture at the Horniman Museum and Gardens in London. With a background in fine art and psychotherapy, he is also familiar to many as a TV presenter on programmes such as The Great Garden Revolution. So, Errol, I'm presenting you with the opportunity to create your dream garden from all of the things you've experienced, seen, loved in the world. If you could choose, let's say, a garden that you've been really inspired by, that, you know, would there be pieces of it maybe or something from it in your dream fantasy growing space, where would you pick? I think there are so many places that I've been inspired by, particularly in my childhood, but Treebar Garden in Falmouth in Cornwall stands out as a particularly special place. I remember visiting with my family while on holiday. Um, I must have been about 14 years old. And it just felt like nothing I'd ever seen before. Everything just felt huge and exotic, towering pine trees, Gunnaramancata, tree ferns, the bluest hydrangeas I'd ever seen, and carpets of moss, rhododendrons dripping with lichen, just so many plants I'd never seen before. And, and the air seemed filled with a beautiful scent, and I think it might have been jasmine. It just felt so lush, almost tropical. The garden was cut into the hillside and uh, led down to a beautiful private cove. I seem to remember that the, the sand was the most white sort of silver and the sea was turquoise. It was just, you know, a, a feeling that I've been searching for ever since, a space that I've been searching for ever since. It was really special. It's sometimes like that, isn't it? That nostalgia from sort of a childhood memory, you know, emanates and resonates throughout your life. Like you say, you're sort of chasing that feeling again. You're trying to find that atmosphere, that that the, the sense that you got while you were there as a child. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, I've only ever visited it that once, and I'm sort of reluctant to visit again because I just I don't want it to get spoilt. Some some of what I remember might be real, and some of it might not be, but I want to remember it like that. Yeah. And are there any sort of particular elements or plants that you have drawn from that you would say, right, that specific aspect, I'm going to have that in my fantasy garden? I can't say specifically, but it was this feeling. I think it's also about the fact that it was cut into this hillside and there was a journey and I felt like somewhere that I needed to explore and I, I was discovering stuff all the time. I think it was more that whole sense of discovery and investigation and exploration that was particularly exciting for me. So it's that kind of sensibility about the place that I would like to take with me in my new garden. And sort of outside of gardens, is there a landscape or a place that you've also found quite inspirational that you'd like to include in this idea of your dream garden? Absolutely. So th for this question, I feel like there is somewhere that stands out and it's with me constantly. When I was about nine years old, I was sort of allowed to venture away from our little cul-de-sac street on my bike with my friends, a little 
sort of go a little bit further. My brother had sort of suffered with uh, childhood depression and it wasn't always easy to be around him or to or that easy to be at home. And so together with my best friend Louis, we'd sort of cycle along the canal and we discovered an amazing wasteland, sort of a, a true escape, if you like. The ground was littered with crushed oyster shell, broken Victorian porcelain figurines, poison bottles, and we later discovered that this place was a Victorian dump. We had to wade our way through nettles and brambles and cut through banks of giant hogweed. And there was a slight sense of danger and sleaze about the place. Uh, but this sort of added to the intrigue. Um, there were sort of burnt out trucks and motocross tracks. Dumped. There are parents listening right now horrified. At well, the <laughs> I mean, it was it was it was a. It was just a, a wonderland for yeah. me, really. But also sort of burnt out cars with, and, and I remember quite distinctly seeing some porn on the back, sort of vintage porn on the back seat, <laughs> which, which sort of made it all the more exciting, actually. So this place was a sort of an awakening for me on in many, many ways. There was also this, and I, I suppose later, I've continued to sort of visit this place ever since, but I discovered that there was a, a very free-draining soil, probably all of that oyster shell crushed over years and years, and lots of sort of exotic plants. So I remember sort of seeing Datora and the Himalayan balsam, sort of a sickly sweet smell of Himalayan balsam that filled the air and it sort of mingled with sort of fetid sort of smell of stagnant ponds, which I suppose it's in, it was an intoxicating smell that has just sort of stayed with me. So if, if ever I'm sort of still walking along the canal anywhere and you, you sort of get that waft in the air, um, it sort of takes me back to this place. Sort of like an iron metal tinged sort of, uh, yeah, sort of super tinny, sweet bouquet. Tinny and sweet, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's that's the one. Yeah, I remember Daytora. I remember Cabea scandens, sort of the tricolored flowers. So sort of all the three colors of the different stages of that that flower on, on one plant and being amazed by that and not really knowing what any of this was as well but just knowing that it wasn't the usual it wasn't what was growing at home or that I'd seen any anywhere else in any other park or anything like that so it just made the place seem very very special so I continued to visit this place and my final body of work on my fine art degree was based around it I used large billows large format camera to document it I painted it I presented small assemblage sculpture made from porcelain that I found there in Victoria in bell jars and that were sort of planted with the weeds from the wasteland, almost like little environments. I, I just think that it's rare that you get to feel that free in a landscape. I'd go there and spend a whole day digging or climbing trees. We'd swim in the quarry and make dens and fires. We basically just felt like we owned the place and I feel that uh, I still feel a very powerful connection with it. I think that brownfield sites like this are so valuable for wildlife. I think we know now that our detritus over time can form a really valuable habitat for, for various creatures. But I also think that places like this should be protected for the well-being of people. I do worry that brownfield sites are now being earmarked for housing development. Uh, I think it's a terrible shame if we lost really valuable spaces like this. Yeah, I think it might surprise a lot of people to hear that, you know, let's say if they live in a housing station, there might be a brownfield site across from them that yet to be developed, or that, like you say, there's just a bit of wasteland left over from some industrial area that those areas can actually have a huge amount of biodiversity and be really, really valuable to wildlife. I think that it'd still be quite surprising to an awful lot of people who aren't maybe super into the world of horticulture and the industry. 
Yeah, and but but I also think that they're really valuable for people. For a number of years, I practiced as a psychotherapist, working predominantly with children and adolescents, and also in adult psychiatry. And I think that that sense of danger and kind of intrigue and, and wonderment is something that we really struggle to find, and that children really struggle to find. And for me, I. It's just stayed with me ever since, and it's been an inspiration. It's one of the reasons why I'm why I'm here today. Why why I'm a horticulturalist. When you're dealing with children and everything from plant blindness to this idea of making sure that children are getting involved in nature, mild peril. <laughs> mild peril is <laughs> a, a, you know, something that the children need. You know, they need to have some level of risk in their lives. Right? Of course, it they? could have all gone terribly it wrong. Could have all gone <laughs> terribly wrong, <laughs> but it didn't, and and it was fantastic. And now it's quite trendy, isn't it, Brownfield site? I mean, we saw quite a few at the Chelsea Flower Show this year. Yeah, they were, oh, they were popping up everywhere. And the use of sort of repurposed concrete and using weeds and, yeah, all the detritus, it's, it's extremely on trend at the moment. For me, it's been on trend for years. <laughs> <laughs> and like you say, I suppose the idea is that Brownfield is a designated zone that's meant to be built on. Isn't that the idea? Well, I feel like Brownfield sites were sites... If, I mean, I, I may yeah. be wrong, but in my mind, brownfield sites are sites that were once built on and they might not be built on now because of things that are growing there or the ground is unstable. And that's certainly the case of the, the place that I call my wasteland is is the ground is unstable and therefore it's not been built on. I think that pe- many, many developers have had the idea to, to develop it, but they haven't. I'm just very scared. I've been scared for years that somebody's going to build on it and it hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened in years and years and years, but it, it sort of feels like we're perhaps making suggestions that we should build on these spaces and that would be a terrible shame and a terrible loss. So, so far you've chosen to include that sense of discovery that you loved in the Garden of Treba and Cornwall that you visited when you were a child and also the wasteland, the brownfield site that you used to roam of the old Victorian dumping ground as a child. How about we bring it up to the modern day? If there's a a feature or some kind of garden element that you would just really love to have to enjoy yourself in your dream garden... What is something that you would want to include? I think just sticking with the wasteland for uh-huh. a little bit longer. Yeah. Um, I think I'd like a swimming pond to remind me of the quarry. I think, and maybe perhaps some reed beds to keep it nice and clear and looking beautiful. I'd like to plant the banks with all sorts of magnificent things like Gunnera, Regersia, Eupatorium, and Darmeria. I think a swimming pod should. The, the swimming pod should also maybe have a jetty. If I could have a jetty as well that runs through the middle so that you can really connect with the wildlife as well as swim through the pond. Yeah, and look really cool diving in off the end. Yeah, yeah, although I'd probably belly flop in reality. (laughs) (laughs) Swimming ponds, again, I think something that so many people would love to have in their gardens even now. They just always look so gorgeous, don't they? Yeah, so so beautiful. And this, this real connection with wildlife as well. They look great, but... I suppose I wouldn't want a pond that just sits there and looks good. I'd want to swim in it. I'd want it to be good for wildlife. Um, So doing lots of different things. I definitely want one of those too. And and the jetty. I like the jetty (laughs) idea. We're going to take that on. And and in this garden, you know, you obviously spend all of your day dealing with plants. Is there a range of plants that you can't grow now or that you love so much that you're obsessed with that you would have to include in your dream garden? After years of renting, my wife and I finally bought our own home. 
extremely fortunate. I'm very, very aware of how fortunate and privileged I am to have been able to buy my own home. However, there was just one drawback to this house. And again, I don't want to sound too ungrateful for having been able to buy the house and have a garden. But the garden that we have was a sort of a northwest facing rear garden. And that was the only drawback for us. Up until that point, all I'd ever dreamt of is is sort of planting sort of a, a sun-drenched prairie garden. This was that was what I'd I'd hoped for. And all so those like grasses and those sort of North grasses American and yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. All those North American prairie plants mm. basking in the sunshine. Yeah. Um looking great into into all autumn and winter too. And so I realized quite quickly that I wasn't going to be able to have this with the aspect that I had, this sort of shady, quite sheltered garden. But fortunately, that those limitations sort of became an opportunity. And I now have sort of developed a passion for woodland plants. And, and it's really in part to having this a garden with this aspect. So I grow plants from all over the world in our tiny little London garden, and I'd love to expand that kind of planting. I'll soon have an opportunity at the Horniman to embark on a really fantastic project. We're about to plant a, a winter garden, but I think that in the fantasy garden, I'd like to include sort of plants like Deananthe uh, with its quivering stems, all manner of Dysporums and Tricertis, sort of otherworldly plants like maybe Brassiopsis mitis and Sheffera, sort of with uh, their really lovely dissected palmate leaves, Dianella tasmanica, uh, Farfugium japonicum, Karengishoma, sparkling melica and asarum that sort of might hug the ground. So yeah, lots of... Sort of like the royalty yeah. of, of shade plants. So like the, the, the princesses and queens and kings of that Why kind not? of world. What, yeah, you know? we're sort of like hostas and ferns. <laughs> oh no. People, yeah, people don't often realise there is a whole world of like really gorgeous flowering plants for shade. They just haven't been exposed to yeah, them Yeah, there's yet. so many. And I think that Having such a small garden, and it really is small, what I have, it's sort of like five metres by five metres. It's not very big at all. You have to choose. You can't just go in for a hosta, you know. And, you know, if somebody bought me a plant, it's sort of almost like the palpitations start if somebody's sort of saying, I bought you a plant because it's like you've got to keep it and look after it and be polite. But there's only room for the for the you know, for a select few. Yeah, sometimes, you're right, sometimes I think the worst gift you can get a gardener <laughs> is a plant because, yeah, do you really think you know? Somebody, yeah. I have a north-facing garden as well on a steep uh, Welsh hillside, very damp and very oh, lovely. And and somebody bought me a begonia, but like one of those red ones oh, from right, okay, yeah, yeah, DIY yeah. store. And I just sort of looked at it and thought, well, that's not going to live for another month. But, you know, thank you, that's great. Table <laughs> decoration for and a little while. It, yeah, it survived actually a year, but we won't go into that. <laughs> Couldn't kill the thing. <laughs> but yeah, so if somebody has got, you know, a small shady garden like that, it's nice to know that there are these options. I think what people struggle with sometimes is that summer flowering period, because of course there's lots of lovely stuff for shade, lots of woodland plants for mm. spring. If you had to pull out of your encyclopedic knowledge of plants, you know, a couple of stars that can do something really nice in a sort of shady garden for summer, what would you say your picks would be? Well, I think for a start, I think that the foliage is underrated, like and, and maybe flowers overrated. So in my garden, there's not a huge amount of flower at this point in the year, although hydrangea aspera cokey is looking really good. 
at the moment. The sort of hydrangea asperas, they're sort of like coming into their own at the moment. And I think a lot of people struggle to grow those. That's a sort of a really desirable plant, particularly at the moment. They've got really lovely velvety leaves. And Koki in particular has got a really dark, dark leaf. And that's sort of the, the beautiful hydrangea flowers are sort of set off on it. And it's not it's not a run-of-the-mill sort of mop head. It looks really, really beautiful. Um, so I think, yeah, hydrangea mm. would definitely be one of them. I'm trying to think of other things. Lots of the Japanese anemones mm. looking fantastic at the moment. I'd have to include some of those. But I know that you, you talked about the winter garden that you're setting up at the Horniman. You've got quite a few projects on the go there at the moment, haven't you? Like the one I'm very interested in is the microforest. Yeah, the microforest is fantastic. So that was sort of planted about a year ago now and it's looking really, really wonderful. It's doing exactly what we expected it to do. So we planted everything, pencil thickness, pencil height, really. There was sort of 900 trees in just over uh, 400 square meters, so a really dense planting. Wow. It's based on this principle that is inspired by naturalized forests. So they've sort of planted in a spacing similar to where the seed would naturally be broadcast. And then the young trees, as they grow, they sort of compete with each other, but they race and so you get this etiolated growth at a very fast rate that means that you get a closed canopy in as little as 15 to 20 years that would otherwise take sort of up to 100 years. So we've already got trees that are taller than me, and I'm not that short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and what sort of um, species did you plant? Uh, all manner of species. I mean, we planted a, a, a really broad range, so sort of pioneer species, late successionals, and Lots of natives as well as non-natives. Things like Euonymus, uh, Cornatus, Sorbus tominalis, Pinus, a whole range of different different trees. I think that we were really thinking as well about every season. So while we were thinking initially about wildlife and thinking about a, a sort of a buffer between the busy London road and the garden, we were also thinking about people too. So the garden's visited by almost a million people a year, and we really you know, we want to demonstrate that you can have a really beautiful garden that can also be wonderfully beneficial for wildlife too. So in selecting the trees, we've really selected for bud break, for blossom, for foraging, for animals and people, as well as leaf fall. So we've got 35 different species. So there's a lot of different sort of successional interest throughout the entire year. This episode is brought to you by Visit Myrtle Beach. You know what's better than getting away to a beach? Getting together at the beach. Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. They've got over 2,000 restaurants, live music playing all day and night, and endless attractions. This place was made for playing hard and beaching easy. Welcome to 60 Miles Where You Belong. The Beach, Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Plan your trip at visitmyrtlebeach.com. Yeah, I'm always interested when, you know, we talk about this microforest, this idea of two things. First of all, what's the understory? And secondly, the idea of how fast it grows and how tightly knit they are. What happens when it does get to a closed canopy stage? Like, how do you, what's the long-term management idea? So I think that a microforest is really based on a, a hands-off principle. And there's different ways that you can approach a, a forest like this, but we're being inspired by a natural principle. So what I didn't want to do, and and, and is often the case with microforests, is you, 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 I don't want to go in and meddle with it. 
in fact, you can cause some problems. If you start to cut down various trees, you can create pockets that, that the wind sort of takes and, and you can lose sections of the forest. So the idea is to kind of make a, make a hypothesis. There is going to be some losses. So the, the, the pioneer species, the things like silver birch, we are going to lose those. They're, they're there for a purpose. And I think it's understanding this balance. So the pioneer species are there to... To, to race and take the space first, but they create shelter and shade for the late successionals, things like oak that will come up much more slowly behind. So in 15 to 20 years, we're going to start to lose some of those species. Um, I mean, before then, we'll start to lose some of those species and those gaps will be filled by the other plants that are around, the other tree species. In terms of understory, we have lots of understory species that are, that are planted now and they are taking the space at the moment. But over time, they're going to be shaded out. And so, and I suppose they wouldn't be if we cut things back and we made space for them, but they are going to largely be shaded out. It's things like uh, Mahonia and Berberis and Holly that can cope with a little bit of shade might go the distance. But we've also broadcast sort of like a, a woodland forest floor sort of seed mix that sort of will look wonderful between now and when that canopy closes. So I think it's it's about thinking about the various stages of life of a forest. And then ultimately, some of those trees may well fail, and that will create new openings. And what we're really excited about is how this forest self-seeds around and sort of building genetic diversity, because some of the tree species that we're planting, things like oak and ash and silver birch, they're really struggling in our sort of changing climate. So if it's getting hot and it's getting dry, but if we encourage these species to cross and to continue, then we might get some genetic diversity that might mean that they'll be more resilient to the climatic changes that we're experiencing. It's just one of, like you say, you got the winter garden as well, one of many projects that you're working on at the Horniman at the moment. I believe there's a dry bank as well that's just been done outside one of the buildings. Yeah, so right outside the front of the museum, we've been developing a sort of um, a drought-tolerant, zero-phytic planting. So Frederick Horniman, our founder, had this desire to bring the world to Forest Hill, which is, as a gardener, as a, as a head gardener, it's a, it's a wonderful kind of banner to be gardening under. So it gives us lots and lots of scope and opportunity to plant lots of different types of plants from around the world. We've got this really wonderful sort of south-facing baked sandstone frontage um, of the building. And it was sort of populated, overpopulated with sort of Mahonia and Formium and lots of 1990s sort of nightmare plants that were sort of like breaking up the stonework. And so there was a there was a need for a bit of a redevelopment. So we just sort of had a big major pathway project across the museum in the winter. And rather than sending all the hardcore and base material to landfill, we decided that we could sort of bridge these two projects together and use all of that hardcore at the front of the museum. So it's all sort of crushed concrete and, and gravel and rubble. And we've banked it all up and we're planting into it. So a wonderful array of plants from around the world planted in that front section. Everybody should go and see. Yeah. <laughs> so you've been there, what, about four or five years now? I've right? actually only been there two and a bit years. Really? Yeah, oh, my goodness. But, but there's no time to waste. You know, <laughs> we're, we're busy. Yeah. I mean, was it a sort of, a sort of a dream gig for you, to, the idea that you would still be able to do projects and, 
you know, bring things on in a place instead of just maintaining what was there. Absolutely. So, I mean, I came from sort of a heritage garden before. and Kenwood House. Kenwood so. House. And, yeah. and they're wonderful spaces um, that are sort of managed but sort of through a historic management plan. I did often struggle with that. And I think that lots of gardeners do because I suppose we have an education and we're leaning on science and we're thinking about climate change. But sometimes it can feel that there's a real challenge to be had to sort of kind of maintain these spaces as they once were planted, but also to try and think about the changes that we need to make. And it sometimes felt really sort of restrained. So if if rhododendrons, for example, are, are dying a death in the summers, lifting them out and planting new ones seemed a bit ridiculous. And so... Yeah, and I I think I just wanted a a real opportunity to experiment and to explore new species and to sort of develop my own knowledge and the knowledge of my team um, and have some fun, really. So I think the the Horniman is is fantastic because we're we're really pushing boundaries and encouraged to do so. Well, you come from an art background. You used to be a painter, I believe. Yes, that's right. I, I guess I'm wondering, a lot of people see gardens as art and other people say, oh, that's ridiculous. But do you see... You know, can you bring elements from your background of art into gardening? Do you feel that there's a, a sort of symbiotic connection between those two things? Yeah, definitely. I think that for me, if I'm honest, I, I identify as an artist first, and I don't think that's ever going to go away. I think there's different seasons, and I'm not painting so much at the moment, not literally. However, I, in many ways, I feel when given the opportunity, and I and I do have the opportunity at the Horniman, and so does my team. We, we're sort of, we, I feel like I've transferred paint for plants in a way. We're still thinking about shape. We're still thinking about form, texture, color, movement, and all the things that I suppose I'd apply to, to painting. So I'd like to think, if it doesn't sound too pretentious, that we approach gardening in quite a painterly sort of manner. And yeah, I, I still, I sort of feel like that is my creative expression at the moment. And if there was an artist's work that you would want to include in some way in your dream garden, what would you what would you pick? I think uh, the ultimate fantasy garden for me would have to include a piece of work by Richard Serra. So Richard Serra sort of creates these monumental Corten steel sculptures. They're sort of inspired by. I think shipbuilding, the shipbuilding process. So they often stand many meters high and extend out into the spaces, sort of giant leaning walls of Corten steel. They're usually site-specific sort of work. So I'd like to work with him to produce a work for the garden, sort of a sort of collaboration. And I'd perhaps position this near the pond so that rainwater runoff could sort of feed in into the pond. And the sculpture would also maybe provide some shelter and shade for some of the planting too. So it would kind of be an integral part in many ways. So your dream garden, as we said, would have elements of that sense of discovery from Treba. It would have that wonderful, you know, 
exploration and freedom from that brownfield site that you used to visit when you were a child. It would have a swimming pond, sort of reminiscent of that quarry you used to swim in with a nice jetty. And it would be have all of these wonderful shady plants, these really gorgeous shady plants that you've been inspired by growing in your London garden and a monumental court and steel <laughs> sculpture by Richard Serra. That sounds fantastic. Sounding if, pretty good. Yeah. If you were going to share this garden with someone or if you were going to have somebody be involved in it in some way, like maybe have someone as your head gardener or someone as your designer or just come to visit and enjoy it with you, who would you share your dream garden with? Okay. So, I mean, this is beginning to sound like a pretty special garden. I think that I'd have to say that, unfortunately, I'd like to be the head gardener of this garden. <laughs> um, but I would really like some advisors to, to perhaps collaborate with. So as well as having sort of a, a career as an artist in the past, I was also a photographer. And while assisting Rankin at Dazed and Confused magazine, I remember meeting Jürgen Teller, so Jürgen Teller, I've always been inspired by his work. Um, he sort of injects so much humour and eccentricity into it, into everything that he does. Um, and I feel that gardens can be so much more than just sort of plant combinations. I mean, he's a really clever man. I'd love to work with him. So I think that he'd be definitely on the team. Also... I'd like to have the American abstract impressionist painter Joan Mitchell. She sadly passed away in 1992, so I'd have to bring her back from the dead if that's allowed. <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay, good. You didn't hesitate. We're, we're going to play that garden version of that, you know, game that you play of like, who would you have at your dinner party, <laughs> yeah. alive or dead, if you could have anyone? So we're, we're, you're allowed to do that. Brilliant. So I'd have her on the team. And she, sort of her use of sort of colour, mark, movement, I think is absolutely sublime and translates really wonderfully into the land. Landscape. I think gardens inspired by other gardeners or gardens can start to feel a little stale. So I think far better to seek inspiration from creative mavericks. However, I know that you only said one person and I'm about to go for my third. <laughs> um, but I think that if I if I, I I would have to sort of have one other very special horticulturalist on my team. In my opinion, he's one of the industry's sort of unsung heroes. And this is um, David Francis. So he was my tutor while studying at Capel Manor. For me, he's one of the most knowledgeable horticulturalists that I know. He's a fantastic teacher and mentor and is always so generous. So many professionals in the industry, I think, have been taught and inspired by him. He's sadly retired from teaching and has moved to Japan. But I think that his legacy sort of still lives on in all the people that he's taught with so much passion. So I'd like to pull him out of retirement to come and work with me back in, in England. I th and I do think that this garden will be in England as well. OK, got quite a party going on there. <laughs> <laughs> now, we've talked about all the things that you would definitely include in your dream garden. But what if there was something that you're like, no, I'm going to burn that on the compost heap. I'm going to, you know, bar the garden gate that will never pass my threshold. Absolutely not allowed. What would you say no to in your dream garden? So it would have to be, without a shadow of a doubt, it would have to be disrespectful dog owners. <gasps> I know. So so I love dogs. I want to be really clear. I absolutely love dogs. But owners who refuse to keep their dogs on leads in areas when they're requested to do so or don't pick up after their dogs are utterly irresponsible and totally disrespectful and so completely and utterly banned. 
Is that a problem that you have at the horny when you allow dogs on leads? Uh, no comment. Okay. Because <laughs> my next question was going to be, is it difficult to be head of horticulture at, at a public garden? It must be quite challenging. I have to say, I have to say, sort of all joking aside, I, I have to say that I think that the, the vast majority of the public are an absolute pleasure to open the garden to, including the dog owners. Most people are extremely respectful and well behaved. I think that I don't think I would want to ever work for a garden that is not open to the public. I think that in, it, that's part of the reason why I do it. You know, my experience, my early experiences of gardening were places that, you know, you, I had full access to. Um, and I think access is a really important thing. It's, you know, I think that it's something that we're very aware of at the moment that not everybody does have access to gardens, green space or growing space. And we actually had a plant fair this summer and we themed it around access to, to gardens and green space. So access, I think, is really important. And opening up out, up the garden to the public is is essential. I know that Horniman is one of very few free gardens, free to visit, uh, which is really wonderful. You know, we did a feature on it recently and, and we did have to search to find ones that were free entry. I mean, that's part of the problem, isn't it? Is that, you know, it's quite expensive to visit gardens. It can be expensive to visit a garden. And also if you haven't grown up with gardens or green space, if you've grown up in a, a high rise tower block, for example, you might not even have it on your agenda to visit a garden. And so to have a free space that you can walk into and sort of, you know, feel your way through and decide whether or not this is for you, I think that's really, really important. So, yeah, a free space, but not just, you know, the Horniman is not just a, a free park. It's a beautiful and a beautifully kept garden. And I think that, yeah, it does feel rare and it's of a decent size too. I think that sometimes... Spaces in London uh, are often quite small. So, you know, the Horniman, we're lucky to have 16 and a half acres to open our doors to. And finally, then, if I was to say that you were to pick the last three things to include in your dream garden, quick fire round, you're only allowed three small things. What would you pick and why? So I'd love to be love the garden to be a place for gathering and sharing. So there'd have to be a great big wooden dining table, sort of, and maybe positioned over under underneath a, a really lovely sprawling zelkova. So there'd also need to be a nice big outdoor kitchen, and maybe a really lovely barbecue that we can cook on. And I'm always coveting the bothy at Fulham Palace. It's a lovely sort of stone brick bothy with a uh, a really stunning wood burner. So a lovely bothy with a with a wood burner where we could sort of cook up sort of breakfasts and have cosy lunchtimes together in winter. I think that would be really nice. That was Errol Ruben Fernandez of the Horniman Museum Gardens in London. Thank you for listening. You can find lots more gardening inspiration on our website gardensillustrated.com. Make sure to hit follow now to never miss an episode and leave a review or comment to let us know who you'd like to hear on Talking Gardens. 